Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Andrew, pleasure to have you on the show, man. Let's talk about finance and policy, all the boring things that are actually the most essential parts of getting action done. All right. Well, us us uh, policy geeks, uh, Ethan, uh, find this stuff exciting. So I don't know about your listeners, uh, but we'll uh, we'll see. I'll I'll give it a whirl. Yeah, great man. to be here. I'm excited. So hopefully the energy will emote through the screen or through the people's ears. But we always okay. like to get the yeah, we always like to get the podcast started with background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing. Sure. So um, I'm an East Coaster, um, uh, born in, in D.C., grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, my uh, academic interests uh, when I was in college focused around Russian studies and the former Soviet Union and uh, spending a lot of time focused on that part of the world, learning the language, learning the history, the culture, and uh, studying there uh, kind of propelled me into the work world uh, in, uh, in former Soviet Central Asia. Uh, and so I started my career in the international development space working for a foundation uh, in Kazakhstan. And um, the formative years of my uh, mid twenties were uh, spent living abroad, um, working on um, projects of various kinds uh, in Central Asia, uh, which is uh, probably not a typical mid twenties uh, experience, um, but uh, it had a few facets to it that I think have really propelled me to where I am today. Um, uh, in particular, I got to um, experience up close um, what all the barriers were to, to making change uh, in society and, uh, and how you try to overcome those barriers uh, through various different mechanisms like finance and policy and uh, building capacity and partnerships and stuff like that. Uh, on the one hand, um, kind of learning how the world works uh, and I also got uh, a front row seat to uh, issues related to pollution from um, development, uh, economic development that was happening really fast, but in uh, not very clean and environmentally sustainable way. And that got me interested in the sustainability issues and climate change um, that has been the focus of my career um, since I came back to the US, which was for grad school in 2007. So I did a couple of years of, of um, uh, master's study uh, to learn about all those things that I, had interested me, but I didn't know anything about like uh, economics and, uh, and policy and climate change. And I've been at those uh, ever since in, in some fashion or another. Um, moved to DC, uh, worked for the World Bank and the International Finance Corporation which is the private sector um, investing arm of the World Bank Group. Uh, I spent four years at the US Department of State working on their uh, climate change team. Um, that's the same team that does the negotiations, uh, including those that are going on in, in Glasgow right now. Um, but I worked primarily on uh, foreign assistance programs and on uh, diplomatic initiatives, which were a couple other main pillars of the work of that, uh, of that office. And, um, 
that itself is a whole experience unto itself, which um, we could we could talk about. Um, but I, um, after doing that for four years, uh, my wife and I moved to New York uh, in 2014, uh, hung out a shingle, uh, started doing project work as an independent consultant. And um, one thing has led to another. Uh, I um, spent four years independent, but began doing a lot of work for a very exciting startup called Climate Finance Advisors, founded by Stacey Swan, that works on all those same issues, but really through the lens of financial markets and trying to drive finance uh, to climate solutions, both low emission solutions and climate resilient solutions, and also helping uh, businesses and investors get climate smart with their uh, investment decision-making. So I, um, since 2018, uh, have uh, joined Climate Finance Advisors full-time. I rolled my practice in CFA, and uh, here I am three and a half years later. And we're happy to have you, man, doing some good work. What did you say you were doing before you were an independent consultant? Um, so I was at the Department of State um, okay. in Washington, working uh, essentially as a diplomat, um, but also overseeing foreign assistance programs. So taxpayer dollars uh, that go towards helping uh, developing countries address their challenges. Uh, in this okay. case, the transition to clean energy, to low carbon economy um, and uh, sustainable development. All right. Well, you might not agree, but you seem to me like a guy who understands how the world works, which is obviously very interesting to me. I am curious, going through that whole story, how your perspective, what, what state did you say you're from? You're from the East Coast. Are you from like Maryland or? I'm from Rhode Island. Well, born Rhode in Island. DC, but uh, yeah, I'm a Rhode Islander. Yeah. So we, we have this way, American way of life ingrained into us from the time we're in kindergarten all the way through uh, K through 12. And then we go off and we explore and do different things. But you left the country. So I'm really interested how your perspective has changed when you were seeing how all these different other Eastern, I guess, kind of the in-between East and West countries worked, what, what, what did that made you realize about the way societies function? Yeah, um, that's a deep question. Um, I love those. I, I mean, I think, um, obviously there are a lot of cultural differences, um, but I, felt like um, going to that region, I had a leg up because I already spoke the language. I had already studied Russian and lived Russian. In, in Russia for a number of years. So that uh, and the familiarity with the, the culture, which uh, is not the same as Russia, but similar. Wait, you lived in Russia as well before that? As a, yeah, uh, as, as a student um, before okay. that, in a fellowship, I, I, I kind of gave you the real cliff notes version. So there, there are other, <laughs> other nooks and crannies in there. Man's um, been around the world. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, to get to your question, I felt like in some respects, I kind of had the key to unlocking the culture to that, uh, that society, right? And that you can kind of look at your experience visiting a place as half full or half empty. Like either you kind of, you, you got in uh, and you, you were able to connect or it was just like too foreign and you didn't really have a way in. I felt like I had a way in. So I felt like that we had a lot more, we have a lot more in common 
then we have differences, of course, right? Of and course. so th that I think was one of the takeaways is sort of the the unifying facts of uh, uh, facets of like the human experience, right? So, I mean, obviously we're, we're different and some societies I think are even more different from those that um, I was in and, uh, you know, American culture, but um, I thought it was, was amazing. And, and, you know, that I wanted to do international development worldwide and tackle climate change worldwide, because these are really global challenges. I mean, every place is different, but there's a remarkable continuity in, you know, a, a number of these, these global challenges uh, from region to region and country to country. Why tackle climate change? Why, why help people worldwide? Why not understand how the world works and then just make a bunch of money and buy a yacht? No, um, I mean, maybe a yacht would be nice too. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I guess my answer to that is I'm someone who's always had the good fortune to really be captivated by the things that I've either been studying or working on, right? Uh -huh. Like I, I was that dork who really liked school, you know? And so for, you know, from a young age, I've always felt like, you know, whatever I'm doing should really motivate me and fuel yes. me, right? And I'm also someone who can sometimes have a short attention span for things I'm not interested in. I so that. I guess that means like, you know, if I don't really love it, I can't fake it for that long. Right. And just doing something to make money uh, isn't that interesting. And we're fortunate in this country that there's such a diversity of career options out there that uh, many of us don't have to work jobs that we positively hate to, to um uh, make ends meet. Some of us do, and there uh, is a lot of uh, inequity in, in society. Um, but um, we have a very vibrant and diverse economy, and so many of us have some choice there. And so I've just always kind of followed my nose and uh, done things that I've um, had some passion about. And um, I mean, I guess it's kind of a, a cliche, right? Like, uh, do what you love. Um, I think for, you know, young people, you often don't really know what you love until you try it, but the corollary of doing what you love is try things that interest you. And then you figure out what you love and then you stick with it or you pivot to something else. Right. Um, yep. and so like, I mean, maybe if I had, you know, tried investment banking at 22 and loved it, maybe I would be sailing on some yacht right now. Right. But, um, Right. I was into Russian studies when I was 22. And so right. I, you know, bought a ticket and, you know, hopped uh, over to Moscow and, you know, the rest is history. So, um, yeah, there you have it. no, I appreciate you sharing all that stuff, man. Uh, it really helps me get the perspective. Um, yeah. So I guess I kind of just want to dive in on um, barriers to change. Cause that's something I'm very interested in. Uh, because things are always changing. The society is continually moving. Nothing is in, in, is really in a state of stagnation. It's either moving forwards, backwards, in my mind. I guess that's kind of a false dichotomy as well. But what when, yeah, throughout your experiences, what have you learned are the biggest barriers to change and how do people overcome them when it comes to serious issues like environmental action or social justice or any of that stuff? 
Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's any single answer to that. Um, and I think it kind of depends on what scale you're talking about, you know, at the level of the individual, the community, a society. But uh, a couple thoughts on that. Um, I think that we humans uh, psychologically um, feel loss aversion very strongly, right? Um, that was actually something I learned in grad school that was incredibly valuable um, about behavioral psychology uh, and behavioral economics. You know, uh, it hurts a lot more to lose a $5 bill than it does to like, then it feels good to find a $5 bill on the sidewalk. Uh, that might be intuitive, it might not be, uh, but it's, there's a lot of very robust evidence that that's how human psychology works. So what that means is that um, unless you've got a lot more people who are gaining than the people who are losing or the gains need to way outweigh the, the losses, you're gonna have people who don't wanna do things that change society, right? Because they're typically winners and losers when things change. Um, and that's kind of the nature of the beast. Um, and I found from my time, you know, in government and working on policy, change is really hard. Uh, I mean, sometimes change kind of happens by itself with technology diffusion, right? Like no one was against uh, cell phones, right? So, or iPads. So they like took over the world, mm -hmm. but most change, I would say, doesn't happen that way, or at least not at first and not by itself. And so it's really about understanding the kind of pathway to change, um, the links in the causal chain, and how do you remove those barriers? And that's, I think, a lot of what international development is about, is everyone sees, you know, these are, and international development isn't only about developing countries. It primarily is, I think, for many of us, but Really, it's about transforming all societies. And it's not hard to see how we're beset by a lot of social and environmental problems. It can be very hard to figure out how you get from point A to point B to solve those problems, right? And there are typically a lot of barriers that interact in complex ways. And the name of the game is how do you overcome those barriers? Right. So how do you overcome those barriers? What did you learn uh, in your time before you joined Climate Finance Advisors when you were working independently? Well, those are a couple couple different questions, right? I guess I mean, was it my own personal barrier of, of trying to trying to make a living as an independent consultant, or or, or solving the world's problems, right? Um, well, I I mean, I feel like everything is kind of pretty similar, like mm -hmm. macro level, micro level. The changes that work for you might might work for the rest of the world. I don't know. Depends. Uh, so, well, let me try to figure out how to unpack that one. I think. Um, partnerships are important. Um, figuring out uh, how you collaborate with different people and different entities. That's something that I think spans the micro and the macro. Uh, it's the partnerships is the, the 17th of the 17 sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not one you hear that much about because it seems kind of airy fairy and you know, what are partnerships anyway, but um, it means something to me. 
Um, and I think, you know, having worked a lot in the, in the nonprofit sector, having worked in government, um, having worked in diplomacy, I mean, you, <clears throat> you build buy-in, you build consensus, you build support for things through partnership. Uh, you cobble together the different resources you need. You expand your scope um, so that you can touch more people. Um, and partnership in what sense? Is that the same as just collaboration, meaning just someone beyond yourself or like specifically just you and one other person or you and one other group working together at the same goal? The former. I mean, I meant it in sort of the, the broadest sense possible of, of collaborating um, yeah. with multiple other entities, often many other entities um, to achieve the scope and scale uh, that you need to solve your problem and to um, uh, also overcome for your own uh, shortcomings or lack of resources, right? Someone, I mean, it's sort of the basic uh, principles of um, Adam Smith, right? And the wealth of nations is, you know, why does trade happen? Because someone else has some good or service that you need and you don't have. And you have something that they need and don't have, right? So you trade, right? And that's like a sort of a cartoon simplified version of like what partnerships are about. Totally. Why do you suppose there's so many nonprofits uh, that are essentially working on the same thing? And that's not to say that they don't work together and collaborate, but why do you suppose there's so many separate ones? That's a good question. I think... Nonprofits try to do different things, right? Some of them are trying to solve local problems. And to the extent that there are lots of different localities, you know, you have lots of, uh, you've got a need in every, every town and village, right? To solve that problem. Um, there are um, a lot of nonprofits trying to solve the bigger problems too, but I don't know if I'd say that the space is overcrowded, right? I mean, there more of them than of government because, you know, uh, you know, government has a, a monopoly uh, in, in a given geographic area or um, thematic area, right? Like at the federal level, there's only one Department of Energy, right? Or in a city, there's only one mayor. Um, although I don't know, maybe I should take that back. Uh, you know, in the federal government, there's lots of overlapping jurisdictions. <laughs> you need to also... You can have turf battles there too, even when in theory, there is only one person responsible for one thing. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's, it's organic, right? And you've got different groups popping up. And so long as these, these social problems uh, and challenges exist that need to be solved, uh, it means that we're not devoting enough resources to them. So it might seem like we got a lot of nonprofits, but we probably need a lot more uh, huh. or they need to scale up a lot. Um, it's either that or they're being inefficient. Um, and, um, you know, some nonprofits are inefficient, but I actually think the nonprofit sector is often pretty efficient because they need to usually be pretty transparent to bring in resources from donors, um, to continue to operate. Um, and, you know, you need to be effective, Right which is sometimes uh, a higher bar than, than entities in other sectors like government or the, or the private sector face, right? You might have a completely obsolete business model that 
can bring in dollars for the moment, but uh, is is kind of uh, a bridge to nowhere for the future, right? Uh, and government, sometimes it works really well, but sometimes it doesn't work so well. So I don't know. I I sense that your your question was like a little bit expressed some skepticism towards the nonprofit sector. So I felt well, like I had to kind of step in and defend it a little bit. No, well, well good <laughs> on you, man. I mean, obviously people know I give most of my money to the nonprofit sector, but the the, the truth behind my personal view mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. I, and we'll, we'll get into climate fin- mm-hmm. finance advisors mm-hmm. right after this is mm-hmm. I would love to see a world where the economic machine is so effective that we don't need nonprofits. We don't need charitable giving. The systems are, they tax the untaxed externalities of environmental destruction or social in, inequity, not, not necessarily mm-hmm. inequity, but um, pure, just bad things like aren't happening because um, uh, you know, products and services are there to, uh, mm-hmm. to, re- to rectify those issues. That that's what I w- would love to see. And, you know, I'm going to keep reaching for uh, you, yeah, utopian utopian dreams because it gives me a never-ending mm. challenge, and I love that. But um, Andrew, mm. what let, let's let's go into uh, what is cli- climate finance advisors? Yeah, so um, I gave a little brief hint of it uh, in my in my background, but I can I can ex- expand. Um, so uh, climate finance advisors or CFA is a uh, boutique advisory firm that was founded in 2015 uh, by Stacy Swan. And it um, works at the intersection of, of climate policy and financial markets. And as I was saying, it, it attempts to solve two problems. It tries to uh, redirect uh, financial resources uh, you know, that exist in our, in our um, economy um, to low carbon and um, climate resilient solutions. And it tries to get decision makers who are are managing financial resources to make climate smart decisions um, and and, um, do that by managing climate risks and by pursuing strategic climate opportunities. Um, Right now, uh, this is changing, but most financial decisions you could argue are climate blind, right? People are just not thinking about where climate fits in. when they make a business decision or when they make an investment decision. And if we're going to solve climate change um, and not be completely sideswiped by the impacts of climate change, we have to change. We have to be thinking about these issues very actively. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a heavy lift uh, because it's a complicated issue and it affects everyone in every sector uh, differently, but it's not an impossible task. Um, and, uh, those are the things that, that we spend our time working. All right. Well, let's start with talking about how do you redirect these financial resources? I spoke to a a private investor, uh, last week who was a really, really nice guy, uh, but he's, you know, he's micro. How, how do you get like, I imagine you're trying to work with large financial institutions. We've also got, uh, the clean energy credit union coming on in a couple of weeks to talk about this is something I'm very interested in. I was always really interested in finance. Um, I think it, it has such a huge shadow over the whole way the whole world works. So h- how does this effectively work? What kind of arguments do you make or, or oh yeah, what's the process behind this? So um, it's interesting in that we don't have sort of a single cookie cutter model or uh, type of client we work with and sure. what we do for them. So we, we work with 
investors, we work with philanthropies, we work with governments, uh, we work with development banks. And so all of them are interested in redirecting capital or you know, catalyzing markets for climate solutions in, in different ways. And they all do different things, right? Some of them give grants, some of them work on policy, some of them make investments themselves, right? So, so the answer is a little bit different um, depending on sort of where you're, you're sitting in society and what you're trying to do. Um, I would say, you know, as you've probably sensed from me now, um, I'm kind of a, a macro thinker on a lot of things and our firm, not, not on everything. Uh, we do a lot of project specific work as well, but sort of our DNA, our original, um, focus and the way that we think about a lot of problems is similarly macro. And what that means is a lot of the work that we do is with government institutions, philanthropies, and very ambitious private sector entities that are thinking not just, um, you know, how does my firm make different decisions, but how do we change the dynamics of the entire market? Uh, so that everyone in that market starts making different decisions, right? Um, that's kind of how policymakers tend to think. And that's when it gets back to that comment that I made before about barriers, right? Why are all of the actors in this financial market today not doing what they should be doing uh, on climate smart investing, right? Why are the technologies and solutions out there that exist, right? Um, not getting the investment they need. It's got to be incentives. It's got to be so, incentives, whether so it's positive in, or negative. So it's incentives is a, is a huge part of it, right? Um, there are some other pieces too, right? Sometimes even people with the best of incentives do not have the sources, the expertise, um, the enabling environment, um, that may be a collective action problem where you need to develop some kind of standard within an industry, um, or, you know, no one wants to go first doing something that hasn't been tried. Um, so incentives is, is a huge piece, but, the, but there are a lot of, of different types of barriers. There are information barriers, there are capacity barriers. And so like, these are the things that you bump up against as an international development professional and as a, as a sort of policy wonk. Um, and financial markets are no different, right? Um, people like to think of them as, you know, being a well-oiled machine and, um, you know, being perfectly logical. And uh, they do a lot of things well, but they're not perfect. Uh, and I think climate change is a, is a, just a classic example of a way that financial markets have responded very slowly and inadequately to a very big challenge. And so there needs to be a lot of intervention, both from within and from without, to change the way they operate uh, very quickly. And that's not easy. And it's not, and things are happening. There've been a lot of very exciting uh, announcements uh, in Glasgow, for example, the last couple of weeks on, you know, 
over $100 trillion of assets under management have now been pledged to, to net zero, right? These like gargantuan sums of money. Uh, different people feel differently about how what those pledges actually mean, but that itself is, is, is a pretty significant development. So it shows that things are happening, right? Like things are happening quickly, but it still may not be quickly enough. And pledges are also not the same as action. So, um, so there's, there is so much work to be done uh, and it needs to happen fast. And so that's what we're working on. Yeah. Well, you say, I mean, things are always happening, man. That's, that's Mm kind of just the way this game of life works. Also, you, you say, which is probably true, that like nobody wants to go first, but leaders always go first. That's what they do. And the people that we remember from history are always leaders, innovators, people who are doing things that haven't been done before or haven't been done in the same way. And I, I personally feel like those people really push, push the, I don't want to call it the narrative or the story forward. And I don't know. There'll, there'll always be people doing that kind of stuff. Uh, and I and I think that now more than ever, I know we talked, I think you and I both think at a macro level, but there are so many micro leaders now. There's so many billions of people and each like you're all we're all doing things that haven't been done before and pushing this like this. This show just shows that anyone can be a leader like everyone's in an, an integral piece of this puzzle and this these works are this is this this problem is so pressing and i agree we need to get more done now so i don't know i appreciate what you're doing uh, i wanted to cover the topic that we had discussed before the episode which is uh blended finance can you explain like what that is and how that works yeah i'm glad you asked that was sort of <clears throat> our original secret sauce at, at Climate Finance Advisors. Um, uh, Stacy, our, our founder, um, created and ran the blended finance unit at the International Finance Corporation. That's the part of the World Bank um, does private investing. Uh, and so she's one of the foremost leaders in that space and our whole um, senior team uh, has a lot of experience with it. So what is blended finance? Blended finance is using um, public or philanthropic capital, um, either investment capital or grant capital, to risk or to improve the risk return profile of an investment to get it over the threshold that makes mm. it commercially attractive. So the reason it's called blended is because if you're thinking about a pie, Typically, you need some slice of that pie, might be small and might be big, to be part of the um, investment capital in a venture or in a project um, that tweaks the attractiveness of that investment to the market in such a way that the capital will flow, right? So to try to give you a concrete example, right? Take like the uh, early days of wind power, right? Or solar power. You know, those are fundamentally technologies um, that are, well, they're commercially viable now. They have always had commercial potential because they provide a good, right? They provide electricity which is something that people pay for, right? 
So if you could find out a way to provide this good um, at a price that was attractive, um, then, and the sort of investment terms to create those projects were sufficiently attractive, then you'd have a commercially viable business model and a commercially attractive investment, right? In the early days, as with any emerging technology, they um, hadn't gotten down the learning curve. They didn't have economies of scale. It wasn't proven. And so it couldn't compete um, with other energy technologies in the marketplace. And yet everyone saw that we needed low carbon energy. So how do you get there? The way you get there is you provide a subsidy that closes the gap to commercial viability, right? Blended finance works where you have something that is potentially commercial and close to commercial, but not quite there, right? If it's something that like, you know, you're, you know, I don't have a good example offhand, but um, I don't know, like building sandcastles on the beach, right? Like your business model is building sandcastles on the beach that the beach like washes away every 12 hours, right? It might be awesome, but it's probably not going to be a commercial business model, uh, at least unless I'm something, there's something I'm missing. And so blended finance is not going to solve that problem, right? You need other tools to solve that problem. But there are a lot of problems where you have like emerging technologies with commercial potential um, or something that might never be fully commercially viable, but it's close, Right. And you were talking about internalizing externalities. Yeah. If you can find a way to bring in those externalities in a way that kind of creates a, a market subsidy um, that that reflects the value that society places on the benefits that something provides, then then you can use blended finance to solve it. Right. And it, and it will make something um, it, it will make an investment look more attractive. Right. And so you can. Um, and, and sometimes it's just as simple as the, the price in the market. Sometimes there are specific gaps in the finance life cycle, right? Or the project life cycle, right? So a technology, when it's young, starts with um, uh, sort of seed capital, right? Then it goes to venture, then it goes to private equity, then it goes to public markets, right? And then you have debt. And, and so like there are all these different um, segments of the market and stages. And when you really get technical, blended finance is often trying to solve a very specific market barrier at one specific point uh, at, in that chain, right? So you might be trying to, you know, get energy, efficiently, energy efficiency loans, right? To kind of take root and get banks to, to issue those loans. And so then you have to really understand the micro aspects of that market, right? Why aren't those loans being made? And if you kind of tweak the model a little bit, maybe there's a guarantee, maybe there's a longer tenor for repayment. <clears throat> maybe there's some you know, discounted source of capital, something like that, that would be sufficient to catalyze the market and remove the barriers. That's what blended finance is about. Yeah, but but how do you choose which uh, technology or product or service to subsidize? It sounds just as risky as just 
investing in it if you don't if it hasn't proven commercial viability how do you pick are you picking based on uh, a net good to the world or is it something else well so that there's let me distinguish between the sort of the the strategy and the toolkit right um so there's the the sort of the the nuts and bolts of how you do it um it's another set of challenging questions you know why and where you do it, right? Um, and, and you ask a very valid question, right? Why would you pick a specific technology to be subsidized uh, over another? And that's a very challenging question. Um, <clears throat> in the case of clean energy, you don't necessarily have to pick one particular technology, but it's pretty clear which ones are low carbon and which ones aren't, right? So you could say, I will offer this subsidy to any technology, as long as it doesn't uh, result in carbon emissions, right? And it just so happened that solar and wind were the first out of the chute because they're the most uh, technologically advanced and commercially developed, right? They also have to be viable to be worth investment or worth subsidy, you know? They have to be viable. That is a classic technology chicken and egg problem. Um, huh. most technologies, um, are not completely developed from scratch by innovators, uh, in the private sector. That's, there are exceptions, but most of them build on the innovation of inventors, scientists, government agencies that did the spade work to actually invent the technology, like the physics, the chemistry and the biology of whatever it is that's happening, right? And, you know, all props to the uh, <clears throat> entrepreneurs who commercialize it, right? But it's not true that those, com those commercial invent uh, products start from zero in, in the vast majority of cases. Someone had to invest in those technologies. And when those technologies were created, they were not a sure bet. So pretty much you can take any technology in existence and say, well, why did you invest in that? Because it wasn't a sure bet. And the answer is because we need new technologies and someone had to do it, right? And or someone took the risk. Someone believed. And you take, you know, you, you take a scattershot approach. I mean, venture capital, you know, uh, invests in like 10 companies and only expects one to succeed, right? They may get a hundred X return on that one unicorn, right? But nine out of 10 investments may go bust, right? And that's, that's kind of how innovation works at the early stage. And someone has to be there to take that risk. And it's frequently the government, um, or in some cases it can be investors who, are able to profitably have a kind of portfolio distribution like that, right? Um, but that's why blended finance exists, is it's one of many tools that the public uses to make sure that there's enough investment in solutions that are not yet commercially viable. Um, some things never become commercially viable, and that's why there are government services, right? And why there's philanthropy. But for things that can ultimately become commercially viable, you have to bridge the valley of death to a technology that's unproven. No one would invest in it. Uh, you know, they no, wouldn't put their own money in it because it's too risky. Um, but it has potential. 
And if we're gonna solve social or environmental problem X, we need technologies capable of solving problem X, right? And someone has to make those early investments. So you have all the early investments in, in R&D and stuff like that. And then when you're at like the, the two yard line, right? And you're trying to put the ball in the end zone, you're not quite commercial yet. Uh, and you need to kind of, you need your lighter fluid, right? To get the market going. And that's like what blended finance does is it, is it does those first like commercial projects that have a sweetener in them, uh, something that's a little bit better than market terms, but it then provides proof positive to the market that this thing works and that you will get not only get your money back, you'll make a profit. And then the idea is after you've proven it, the market then takes care of itself and then blended Beautiful. finance professionals go on to the next problem. Yeah. So what are you guys working on right now? What are we working on now? Um, so I can tell you about uh, a big program that I'm working on, um, which Definitely. I've spent most of 2021 on, which is called uh, the EU-US uh, Climate Risk and Resilience Cooperation. It's kind of a mouthful, but basically it's a transatlantic partnership, aha, back to partnerships, funded by the European Union and the US Climate Alliance, which is an alliance of 25 state governor's offices that are hmm. particularly committed to climate action and have banded together to kind of collaborate and share expertise. Um, and that's exactly what this partnership is, although it expands beyond just US states to also work with entities in Europe. Uh, and it's focused specifically on uh, investment in climate resilience, particularly climate resilient infrastructure and managing climate risk um, uh, through uh, approaches that are, are led by the government, but often uh, with collaboration from the private sector and from investors. That's it in a nutshell. It is itself a grant program uh, that is uh, generously funded by both of those partners, the EU. Um, but it is, it is about exchanging expertise uh, amongst policy practitioners, as well as um, investors and other experts to drive action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement, uh, particularly on adaptation and resilience. So um, the Paris Agreement basically has three pillars, uh, mitigation, emissions reduction, adaptation, which is making us sort of robust in the face of a changing climate and, and finance. Um, people, you hear a lot about the 100 billion, about the finance, you hear a lot about emissions reductions. You don't hear as much, I don't think, um, uh, about adaptation, but we do see headlines every day about climate-fueled natural disasters, wildfires, storms, hurricanes, sea level rise, floods from like flash flooding from crazy precipitation events. You know, the, the list is, a, is very long and it's growing. Uh, these are climate impacts that are already happening today and they're only gonna get more severe. And this is a problem that's been pretty much neglected. Even though scientists have been ringing, you know, sounding the alarm for decades, 
most people have only begun to notice these impacts recently, and we are way behind the curve um, to adapt ourselves to um, the climate of today, let alone the climate of tomorrow. And so we have a gargantuan uh, amount of investment to make to make our societies, our infrastructure, our built environment, even our natural environments, resilient uh, in the face of a change in climate. Right. So um, that's what this is about. Um, now we've, we're starting to get our, our arms around the problem, but we still need to invest in the solution. That's where the climate finance advisor's role comes in, right? It's how do we figure out what we need to invest in, uh, you know, create the enabling environment for that investment to happen, and then actually get the dollars to flow. And so this partnership is exploring those various challenges, um, mostly through the eyes of, say, a state government official who's guiding their climate policy um, on resilience and trying to figure out how the heck do I protect my constituents and get these investments made in climate resilience as quickly and effectively as possible. And so some of that is about planning. Um, <clears throat> some of it is about you know, legislation uh, and government programs. And a lot of it is about figuring out you know, how do you work with different um, elements in the private sector to actually get capital to flow and, and um, get these investments made and, and, and infrastructure built uh, so that societies are protected uh, before the next storm or the next, wild, or the next wildfire. Yeah, so speaking of uh, elements in the private sector and mitigating risk, just at the end here, I wanted to ask you like, what role like these insurance companies can play to creating like climate smart investments and is the, are their models continue going to continue to be viable when they when everything you know keeps starts getting hit by disaster consistently they in the whole point of the insurance companies they make money because disasters don't happen don't they that's true although um I'm not so worried about the insurance companies. I'm worried about the, the insurers, right? The, those who buy the policies because the insurers, almost all insurance policies are one-year policies. So insurers could have a really bad year. And in theory, an insurer could be wiped out where one terrible, horrible, uh, no good, very bad year completely, you know, erases them from uh, the face of the earth. But what is likely to happen in most cases is those losses rise uh, and uh, insurers readjust uh, every year. And what can they do if the disasters keep rising and expanding? They raise premiums or they leave the market. Uh, and ultimately, those two things are basically the same, because if you keep raising premiums, ultimately, people will stop buying the insurance because it's not affordable. Uh, and then the market kind of falls apart by itself. And that is, is already happening in a lot of places, right? Um, you know, flood insurance in coastal Florida, uh, you know, wildfire insurance in California. These are insurance markets that have a lot of problems. And um, 
they're tough problems to solve because someone has to pay either for the damages or for the investments to prevent the damages from happening in the first place. And um, it's a society-wide problem. You know, it, insurance in many respects kind of sits at the, in the middle of it. Um, and insurers need to be a big part of the solution and, and reinsurers, I might add, but they also can't do it by themselves, right? You have to really kind of think about it from a systems perspective. You know, how do we, as you were saying, you know, change incentives, but um, how do we also change the way we build our cities, right? Yeah. Our well, do those, company, do those companies <clears throat> invest in resilience at all? You imagine they would. Well, so uh, insurers do two things, basically, right? Um, they underwrite insurance policies, meaning they take on risk, right, um, from the parties they insure. And they invest. They invest the proceeds of those premiums, right, uh, and hold on to them and grow those investments for the rainy day when they have to pay them out. Right. Yeah, but invest so in what? Well, in, uh, my point is simply that insurers are some of the largest institutional uh, asset owners and asset managers in the world. So they Sounds sit powerful. on a huge pot of money. Um, and so when you talk about how, do, how can insurers be part of the solution, you're really talking about two things, right? You're talking about how do they interact in the insurance markets with um, the entities they're insuring? Uh, and what are the incentives there? What are they willing to insure? Under what circumstances and so forth? That's sort of one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is getting them to invest those trillions of dollars that they're sitting on uh, in climate solutions, just like any other investor would, right? And insurers, you would think, are particularly motivated to do that uh, in theory because they want to make their pool of insureds more resilient, right? And so they have a sort of a double incentive um, to invest in these solutions. The other thing about these institutional uh, asset owners, uh, like insurers, it's also true for pensions and endowments and, um, you know, state-owned uh, um, wealth funds, um, they play the long game, right? Um, they need to be around to, to meet their obligations decades in the future. And so it, in theory, their incentives are very well aligned for a problem that is bad today, but is really going to be bad decades from now. Uh, and so we need to be thinking long term. Um, and, and so there's a lot of potential um, to to for the insurance sector to be a very powerful force for, for good on these climate issues. But there are a lot of challenges there too. Andrew, thank you for trying to explain the most complicated systematic interactions of our economy uh, in less than an hour. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we got someone like you thinking about this kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's been great to have you. Last question I always love to ask people is any advice you have for uh, young people who are passionate about creating a positive impact here in this lovely world we live in? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And um, uh, I feel like I've been kind of talking a mile a minute on a lot of topics. So I, I hope uh, some of it made sense. Uh, you, you'll, you'll have to tell me. When they you can talk slow it down. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> well, slowing it down just means they'll hear it, right? It's still <laughs> it. But um, uh, so to answer your question, um, what can they do? Well, I think first and foremost, um, you know, living in a democracy, we need to vote for elected officials who take this problem seriously. And so I would say first and foremost is, you know, vote, get up to speed on, you know, the, the political debates around climate and sustainability where you live, whether it's your school board, you know, whether it's voting for president and, you know, everything in between. Uh, it's really important. Um, and, uh, you know, there are reasons to be cynical about a lot of things, but um, you don't really have a right to complain if you're not voting. Uh, and participating in the process. That's what I think. So you got to do that first, right? Um, and you can do even more to be active, um, you know, in, in political campaigns and helping to develop good legislation, you know, pressuring groups that have influence to take good positions or to come up with good rules or to vote for good rules and stuff like that. I think that's the single most important thing. But you can also invest your money now in, in clean solutions. And you don't have to have a lot. There are a lot of emerging platforms now um, that allow you to um, invest in sustainability. And you don't just have to invest in that sort of market ETF anymore <clears throat> that also has uh, you know, oil companies and coal companies and whatever in there that you might not want to invest in anymore. It is much easier now to invest your values than it was just a couple years ago either. It's, it's a very rapidly changing space. And so I would say do that too. I couldn't agree more. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show, man. I, I really, truly appreciate what you're doing, man. Thanks so much, Ethan. Me too. Respect. Uh, Res thank you respect. so much for having me. Uh, this has been great and uh, happy to join you anytime. My pleasure. All right, everybody. See you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.